This is a Sci-Fi Rewind with Miles P. McLaughlin and Scott Herzog. Scott Herzog. Good evening, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. And we have joining us tonight, I guess rejoining us, because he's been with us for so many other shows we've done, and it's great to have him back on, John Miro, Rhymes with Hero, all the way from Canada, on Canada time. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It is great to have you back on. It was great to see you at Balticon, and uh, it's just great to be here talking. Although, uh, you know, Starship Troopers, I don't know. Uh, John, what's with this? Well, I don't know. It's something that's uh, uh, a fond memory from my childhood. It was a double shot. I read The Hotland, and then I read Starship Troopers, which diverges a bit, but is my preferred version of the two, which I understand is going to get some people hot under the collar. <laughs> I think it's got a lot going for it. All right, good, good. Well, we look forward to hearing that because I think people typically flip the other way, saying, hey, the book's great, but the movie, and eh, not so much. So it'll be it'll be good it'll be good to talk about that. So John, uh, John, you are a podcasting fiend. Now, I understand you've taken a break for the summer, but still, you put out tons of good audio content. So what's coming down the pike from from your world, from Serving Worlds? Oh, thank you very much for saying. Uh, yes, uh, the real life has interceded to such a degree that the summer has been a sabbatical period. Um, school's back in session. You can expect some new podcasting soon. Uh, you'll be expecting standalone, a couple of short standalone works to reintroduce people to my feed, servingworlds.com, a sequel to the novel Asunder called Pyre, uh, and a series of uh, anthology work together called Walk the Fire, which is a new universe that I'll be bringing to uh, podcasts and ebook readers near you. Right. Now, is Walk the Fire, is that a, um, is that a anthology type thing? Walk the Fire is a shared universe that I created myself. I've invited... Awesome. Eight other uh, writers to play in my playground with me uh, about a concept in a, a future galaxy, future universe where humans have gone even farther uh, than you might have think using traditional technology because it's backed up by a second technology, which is kind of a, a neat little element that I'm having a lot of fun with. It's one of the oldest technologies man's ever played with, but I've just tweaked it a little bit. Awesome. Hmm. Awesome. And when can we expect to see that out? You're going to be seeing that on September 20th, uh, release for ebook, and the uh, podcast will start running out at that point. Awesome. Well, that's awesome. So, so you have a couple other writers helping in the universe. Are, you going to, are they also going to be contributing their audio voice to this content? Well, you see, what I've done with this is I'm a big believer in independent publishing. I'm a big believer in podcasting, ebook, fiction. So I've reached out to people beyond the podcasting sphere. I have some very popular and, and well known podcasters. Uh, Nathan Lowell, uh, Brand Gamblin, Patrick McLean. Uh, I also have some very popular uh, Kindle writers. Uh, Dan Sawyer kind of straddles that um, divide of podcasting 
and ebook, as I'm sure you know, Nathan Lowell does. I also have uh, Matthew Sanborn Smith, um, famous for some of his narration and some of his stories on Tor.com and uh, Starship Sofa. Uh, Ed Robertson and Jason, uh, I'm sorry, Jason Andrew Bond, who were very uh, prominent uh, up-and-coming ebook authors that I was very fond of their work, as well as a couple other names in the mix, to give a really good representation. And as everything, being a writer, and especially in the independent arena, um, sharing your knowledge base, sharing your fiction, and sharing your audience makes everybody win. And that's why I cast my net so wide. So you're going to get to hear some familiar voices and some new voices in Walk the Fire. But hey, you know, those new voices might, you know, just bring in some more people into their audience and their audience we brought into some of your stuff. stuff and that's awesome. Yes, in, in the vegetable kingdom, we call it cross-pollination. <laughs> <laughs> and that we do. Well, tonight we're, uh, we're going to be talking Starship Troopers. Before we get to that, we often like to announce what our next one's going to be, our next rewind's going to be. And listeners, you have voted. You had 10 different chances to vote to different things. And what was the number one pick? Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest. <laughs> Galaxy Quest won out with 40% of the vote. Coming in second was Fifth Element and then Flash Gordon, that little 80s flick, early 80s flick there that came out. And I'm glad we're not doing that one, actually. <laughs> so, But Galaxy Quest will be our next rewind. And so be looking for that coming uh, sometime in October. We're going to be doing that one. So we'll keep you oh, in the loop for that. So. I can't wait. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I remember just, you know, there's something about Tim Allen's captain in that one, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it was just awesome. Sam Rockwell. Don't open the door. Is there air? You don't know. <laughs> I can tell you've seen that movie a few times. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? Oh, man. Let's move into some Starship Troopers here tonight. And before we get into first impressions, I often like to start out with uh, some of the stats of how this movie did. And I'm going to be honest, John, as I went through the stats uh, – I, I, I seem to be missing something somewhere. Miles and I had a huge discussion mm -hmm. in this, and what I'm getting as the total gross and what it costs to make the movie just don't add up. Um, because they're telling, I think what I'm hearing is that the first movie was hailed as a success, which is why we got two, three, four, and a miniseries and all that, or I guess a and a CGI movie that's just being released right now. Right, right, mm -hmm. right, right. So this obviously was was successful, but what I got as the overall world gross, excuse me, I'm wrong. Worldwide gross, I guess, was 121 uh, million, and it cost 100 million to make. So that's hmm. it made money, not stellar, but it made money worldwide. Well, that was theatrical release gross. Yeah, so that doesn't include uh, DVDs, I guess, or anything else. But well, this movie came out uh, it, before Y two K, and just ninety seven or ninety eight, right? And it was the one of the last movies that really benefited, I think, from both ends of the push. Uh, it was a movie that got a lot of play in, in video stores before uh, iTunes and digital formats took some of the thunder from genre movies. Uh, a lot of the genre movies don't do as well in blockbuster and on pay-per-view because everybody's already bought one or got the iTunes copy. Um, but it also did well because it translated to so many different... There's not much uh, that you have to get the dialogue right. If you translation this into Norwegian or Japanese, you can still do a pretty good job. Uh, so it did do well worldwide, especially in recurring, um, like you say, recurring audiences keep coming back to this film. Right. Well, you know what? And actually, it did better in the foreign market. I mean, 66... I think it was 66 million in the... Um 
in the foreign market, 54 domestic. So it did much better, at least a little bit better in the worldwide market. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, which which begs, I just want to know, John, maybe you can answer this. Uh, do, is Canada considered part of the domestic or part of the worldwide? <laughs> Come on. Oh, we're actually um, we're actually considered domestic. I was going to uh, say. I don't know why. Um, I think every single studio and every single profit sharing partnership has a different theory on that. But <laughs> we we share release dates. We share a DVD region. Yeah. Region code one, and we share a, a lot of uh, copyrights in common and, and uh, um, <sighs> treaty agreements right. for intellectual copyright. So we're considered part of it, but I don't know. I know sometimes, and I'm no expert on this. I am not an expert, but uh, sometimes the <laughs> uh, the box heard. office tallies are cumulative, and sometimes it's just the states. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know why that is. Uh, interesting, interesting, nonetheless. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on. What let, let's talk about initial impressions as we went back and re, we kind of rewatched this. Mm-hmm. And um, John, since you kind of chose the movie, why don't we start with you? Uh, I assume did you go back and rewatch it for this, or did you? Are you just going off memory? I rewatched the beginning and the end. I didn't get to watch the middle, which okay. was actually the perfect way to do it because I'd forgotten how much of the movie starts before the action of the film. Right. Um, yeah. And, and and then I got to see the, the, the glorious climaxes with Dookie Hauser in his full jackbooted glory. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what was what was your thought or your impression of the movie watching it now? Came out what in nineteen ninety seven. So we're fifteen years later, or a little, somewhere around there later. Yeah, my initial impression was uh, when I started watching the the beginning of this movie. Was, my God, it's nine oh two one oh. It's I know what you did last summer. It's party of five. Oh my God! Like they're hitting all the notes. It's all the pretty people. It's the last year's hot CW show. Um, but that's the thing about that is is that it hit that formula so well. It was about the cool people in high school and the geeks and the outcasts in high school and the unrequited love. But kind of threaded through that was uh, Michael Ironside's character and the whole notion of the subversive element of the film, which I'm going to come back to a couple of times. Yeah. But um, I was just shocked. I was like, it's Dawson's Creek and Gossip Girl. It's, it, it, <laughs> it, it really did nail that feeling of what every generation seems to get out of their mindless, uh, I won't say mindless entertainment, but very formulaic teen entertainment. Right, right. So I assume by your knowledge of all this other teen entertainment that you watched all these shows on a regular basis consistently. I never, ever did. Don't ask. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. Um, I've seen a few Dawson Creek, and I watched uh, 90210 and Endless Loops on repeats when I was having dinner when I was a kid. Um, I think uh, that's about it. But I, I have seen... A couple episodes of any of those shows that I've mentioned because I happen to be staring blankly at the screen at the time, um, and they all do seem to be very close. Um, there's always very similar elements. They yeah, definitely. Musical accompaniment, the fashion element, the characters, and always like the triangle and the outcast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Miles, let's move on to you. So you watched this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you came at it saying, well, this is not my favorite movie. What did it... First of all, maybe we should back up. Why did this movie resonate for you when we when we talked about going back? When John mm-hmm. said, "Let's rewatch this movie," and you kind of cursed his name. Why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, why? Why was that? Why did you have that reaction? 
I, I just felt like some of the sci-fi movies we've reviewed, I don't know, they just they seem to be a little have a little more depth and have more, um, you know, there's more depth to mine and, and, and more of a message. And, and and maybe there is a message in this one. And John, you, I think you sort of alluded to it, um, that which I'm open to, you know, uh, hearing. Um, so I don't know. This movie just seems so almost farcical in, in a lot of ways. Now, there's things in this movie I do like that I, that, that I find amusing. The, the, the World War II-esque propaganda movies, um, the idea that the, the military has taken over and, and it's um, everything is a fascist re- regime. It's almost a black comedy. Maybe that's why it might have more appeal to uh, our European friends. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking of the movie um, Iron Skies, which is a sci-fi black comedy, which is doing really well right now, which I want to see. I wonder maybe that's why maybe this movie had more because it has that kind of black comedy tone to it as far as um, – the, the the state being everything and be you know you want the, to you know the initiative to, to to join the military so you could be a citizen and and have maybe more rights than those who are not not citizens I guess um, so it it does explore some interesting things in here but it just there, there is sort of a I don't know a tongue in cheek a wag you know um, a wink nod sort of uh, sort of tone to it almost i guess i'm I, i'm wondering so you watched it again mm-hmm. did those same sentiments continue to resonate with you i'm afraid so you're afraid so well don't need to be afraid so that's mm-hmm. all right um john you, were you gonna ask miles something in there oh please do well no i'm i would i was getting a little bit hanged by that news a little longer i think he's right about some things he's right about oh there's a lot of money a lot of money splashed on the screen and um some people say that there wasn't enough payoff for that um I think that I will agree. I'm just thinking back. The middle middle part maybe was weaker than the beginning of the end, and that may be why I'm a little fonder, especially after rewatch. But um, I think the bookends of the middle and the end are more than just tacked on. I think that they provide in the very beginning you see a very white earth, and at the end you're seeing uh, of all the people that at the beginning of the movie were getting along great are either at each other's throats or in jeopardy or dead or um, become Nazis. Uh, and and it's, it's so fascinating to watch. Um, there's a lot of layers to the film that excite me because when you watch the, uh, the propaganda bits, would you like to know more? Um, Clendathu, home of our enemies, um, it plays just like a, an Internet version of a war propaganda film. Young people from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part, too. (laughs) They're doing their part. Are you? Join the mobile infantry and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. The bugs send another meteor our way. But this time, we're ready. Planetary defenses are better than ever. Right, right, absolutely. Uh, And it becomes less and less subtle as it goes along. So by the end, we're doing our part to kill the bugs, and it's just a whole bunch of little children 
smiling gleefully while they're stepping on cockroaches. Yeah. Like somebody took a bag of cockroaches, poured them on the ground, started the propaganda camera, and everybody's smiling and jumping up and down. Uh, and everybody's supposed to be giggling at the black comedy. But if you go to the very beginning of the movie, there's one character that stands out of this very homogenous white society, and that's uh, Michael Ironside's uh, philosophy and uh, moral history. I forget the exact title, but he's a teacher about the re- revolution that changed the way the world works, um, that became, you cannot become a citizen in the society portrayed by this film unless you have served in the military. You have freedom of speech, freedom to move, freedom of religion, freedom to own property, every right except to vote. Uh, you can only vote if you strapped on a gun, Kevlar vest, and gone out and protected the civilization, which it, it's just... In the middle of Beverly Hills 90210, he comes in with this, and somebody hits you upside the head with the shovel going, what? And then it goes right back to he's flirting with some other, uh, uh, the lead character is flirting with uh, his girlfriend, and you're getting puppy dog eyes from the other girl who obviously wants him and he doesn't know exists, and then you completely forget about it. But then they hit you with it several more times throughout the film, not the least of which is, uh, I'm sorry, but um, when Doogie Howser starts off the movie by being, oh, shucks, I'm just a goofy sidekick friend who happens to be able to nudge my gerbil into going up and scaring my mom. Yeah, crawling up my mom's leg, right? Yeah, (laughs) Um, that's that's cute and goofy. And just like most subversive material is, it examines the cute and goofy and where the cute and goofy goes. And that little nudge becomes, he becomes really comfortable and enjoys nudging people around. Right. And then the next time you meet him, he's, he's, profited he's thrived in this chaos that is just killing and killing and killing so many youth and people are talking about is this the extermination of the human race they actually talk about that a couple times the sky marshal has to resign and another man come in the top pole i failed you i must leave and it's that he kills himself afterwards um this is like a serious time and this guy's having a ball getting to put on black leather jackets with big lapels and walk around and scare people that are much taller than him and uh it so happens he gets to walk into his friend rico again and promotes him to the to leading a unit and sending him on a mission that is to do what he wants likely to get him killed but it'll help his friend if his friend isn't destroyed completely but that's good so everybody wins (laughs) <laughs> uh, and then you start taking a look everybody in this film is acting either out of grand passions love or jealousy or or hatred uh, and it becomes just an orgy of violence at the end like anything out of uh, Abu Ghraib or anything out of uh, a military caught on camera video um, it, it vacillates between that and just a very chilling we completely engineered um our people to be fodder so that we can decimate another species. And what what's most interesting is they talk in the very beginning of this movie about how, oh, those pesky insects. But if you listen to it carefully, it sounds like we decided to do a land grab on them, and that's why they attacked us. Hmm. In the beginning of the movie, yeah. uh, it's there's this hint of, oh, yeah. this is our planet. Yeah, we can take it. And that's when we're invaded after knowing about them at the beginning of the movie and a long time prior to that. Right. So when you take the look at the fact that it's a black comedy movie with cute kids with shower scenes on spaceships so you can see breasts, 
So <laughs> he's in space. And you take that it's a balls-to-the-wall Paul Verhoeven's follow-up to Robocop, uh, just violence. When you take that it's an action tentpole film for a studio, I think it was a TriStar summer release. And then you take the fact that somebody gave this guy Verhoeven the right to weave in a subversive plot and take fun-loving um, apple pie characters and turn them into Nazis, like visual representation of Nazis whose gleeful victory at the end is, we've made them afraid. Yeah, it's right. kind of It's kind of a stunning pastiche. Yeah. It's kind of an amazing accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I I think when John, one of my first impressions, and this, I think this ties in. Have, did you do you remember the uh, the Eisenhower um, speech uh, uh, about the military industrial complex? Do you know what I'm I, talking I've, about? I've read it, but I have never heard the whole thing. Okay, so so as I was watching this, and that, and think about, I mean, even America, and I'm sure we aren't the only country, but the idea, and especially in America here, that one of the things that makes our country run is by being constantly at war. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and, and I had to think about that. And there was a movie, a documentary that came out that kind of played on this called Why We Fight um, that I'd watched. And it was about how the machine of war just keeps America flowing. And that, you know, I think, I, I forget what the stat is, but it's since Eisenhower's times, it's been less than 10 years that we haven't been in some war. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 this, and, and so here we have a nation of war. And what's making this nation run is the fact that we – there's the enemy. We're going to fight, take it to the borders. Okay, so they destroyed it. Who's to say that you know they aren't the ones – maybe they did instigate the bugs to come down and destroy Earth so that now we have a reason to fight and continue our purpose and our, our grander scheme and be the people that we were meant to be, you know? Anything is possible. It could be. It's played fast and loose, but you right. have this huge military complex, all those fleet vessels. They're there for a reason. They're sucking down income, and people are paying for the beautiful condos in in Buenos Aires back on Earth. Um, there's definitely an upper-class elite, and it's, it's in this movie, though, they change it from being the profiteers of war to the veterans of war, mm. which which you think about sounds on first glance like you're saying, okay, well, then you must be okay uh, because you're actually the people that went through and sacrificed. But take a look at Egypt. The military in Egypt kind of ro- runs the show, and we've discovered suffering in the last few years that you can have a, a, an incredible upswell of uh, pop- popular uh, sentiment that will overthrow a dictator, but the government that propped them up was the military, and the military is still in place, just the face at the top changed. So it doesn't really matter if you're the money man or if you're uh, just totally enamored of being in charge because of the whatever laws you've put in place. If you, whether it's you know you have to make money or you have to serve in war, you still have an infrastructure in place, and whatever their purpose was. Uh, when they just left it open at the beginning about, oops, we're on the same planet as the bugs and now we're at war. It, it, that's a big oops. That's a big oops to draw over and put a little white paper, stick a pin in it. We'll come back to it later. And then they never do. Yeah. Very, very, very true. Very true. Uh, and you must forgive me. I seem to have verbal diarrhea on the subject tonight. You know what? It's totally fine because you're, you're actually you're actually making me think about this movie in a slightly different way than I took from it. Wouldn't you say, Miles? Yeah, I would say Miles still doesn't like the movie, but uh, yeah, I may not be. Yeah, it, rede- it redeem. I think it redeem for me. It redeem when you when you view it from that angle, it kind of redeems the movie at least a little bit. 
Well, let me ask you, John. I mean, as far as you've read the book first and and you've seen the movie, mm. um, how how um, I, I guess without giving away too much, how much do, how much does the book and the movie, you know, um, what, what, how how much do they take take different roads? It, it it's. I'd say it's got about at least seventy percent of the same DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, there's okay. more flashbacks to being in the high school history class and the rights of a full citizen. They break up the battle scenes in the novel. Uh, in the novel, it's not just the bugs. There's other races that uh, are kind of like the sympathizers with the bugs. And there's at least one other race that's like humanoid that they go to uh, battle with at the beginning of the story. It's very similar, um, and a lot of people complained that um, this is either Heinlein, who was a naval uh, serviceman, either being incredibly overly romantic and ignoring reality when it came to the fact that uh, military should control the government, when the United States government is pretty much based on posse comitatus. I mean, that's been overturned in the last few years, but the whole idea that military cannot operate here. The Coast Guard takes care of our shores. The military can o- operate offshores, but the CIA and the military are never supposed to have anything to do with, like, you're never supposed to have army men guarding banks. You're never supposed to have army men inshore um, because the idea is that, therefore, you're having a military government just like uh, Egypt, no matter how you dress it up. Although after 2001 and 9-11, that's completely been stood on its head in many ways. Right. Um, so, uh, that's actually a very interesting thing. There's, there's a whole school of thought that um, you can compare this to uh, the military-industrial complex, actually, Scott, uh, and uh, how it's reacted to 9-11. I won't go into the, any conspiracy theories, but they talk about, wow, out of nowhere, an enemy that people laughed at drops a bomb that destroys an entire part of society and we can't even find them and touch them they're like they're like insects that just hide in this in 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 the scenery and they come out and get us and in a lot of ways it's whether it was intended to or not it's got a lot of comparisons to how life is now fighting a war on terror because the you have in the movie these beautiful grand spaceships going up against fireballs of acid and plasma burped out of big bugs Mm -hmm. right Right, right, and that's and that and that's very true. And and how much that event has altered and allowed, you know, more of a military presence on on U.S. soil. And yeah, I, I, mean, I guess really, I guess really, I guess really true. on many soils, not just U.S. soil. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, but yeah, well, very true. Well, I, I think these are some good first impressions. I guess they're longer than first impressions. But uh, what other scenes, as we think about this movie, kind of really resonate? Uh, Miles, let's go to you this time. What are what are some scenes that really resonate for you as you were watching this? Well, John alluded to it already, but the the whole um, the classroom scene with with Michael Ironside with the students. Um. Rico, Rico, pay attention. Sorry, Mr. Ratchet. Let's sum up. This year, we explored the failure of democracy. Well, the social scientists brought our world to the brink of chaos. We talked about the veterans, how they took control and imposed the stability that has lasted for generations since. You know these facts, but have I taught you anything of value this year? Hmm? You, why are only citizens allowed to vote? It's a reward. What the Federation gives you for doing federal service. No. No. 
Something given has no value. Look, when you vote, you are exercising political authority. You're using force. And force, my friends, is violence. The supreme authority from which all other authority is derived. Uh, my mother always said violence never solves anything. Really? I wonder what the city fathers of Hiroshima would say about that. You. They probably wouldn't say anything. Hiroshima was destroyed. Correct. Naked force has resolved more issues throughout history than any other factor. The contrary opinion, that violence never solves anything, is wishful thinking at its worst. People who forget that always pay. Rico, what's the moral difference, if any, between a civilian and a citizen? A citizen accepts personal responsibility for the safety of the body politic, defending it with his life. A civilian does not. The exact words of the text. But do you understand it? Do you believe it? I don't know. Of course you don't. I doubt anyone here would recognize civic virtue if it reached up and bit you in the ass. My note is a teacher from Total Recall. Yeah. <laughs> um, first, I, I like images about anything I see. So it was okay. yeah. Even though I'm not fond of this movie, you know, I like I did like his performance in it and kind of the whole wrestling with the. Um, um, all the issues going on there and um, interesting where he says, you know, the failure of democracy and uh, the, the, the military, you know, uh, taking over and stuff. That's and a great quote. So um, I probably saw this movie in the late 90s. So some of it, I didn't, I, I guess I didn't watch it with the, try to be as more discerning eye. So right. I picked up maybe some more of this subversive stuff that, you know, that John was alluding to. Right, right. I think for me, uh, you know, one of the scenes that really uh, stuck out to me is the uh, – and this is a scene I actually couldn't watch, John, because it was just too – either it was too over the top or just too brutal. But it's a part – Well, it's not the brain bug. Yeah. Um, it's not the brain bug, which – but the, but the part that bothered me was when they, when they land on the planet the very first time and humanity is just getting slaughtered and they just don't have a prayer in Hades, right? There's just absolutely no way they're going to survive and yet you see them you know, get cut in half, splattered in guts, even though it's fake blood, get thrown all over the place. After a while, I said, oh, man, I just couldn't watch it. It was like enough is enough. You know, just so there were some times where humanity was just getting their butt cheeks handed to them. That there was absolutely, you know, I just I had to look away at that point. Um, and I don't know if that's good filmmaking or just a bit. Maybe maybe it was a bit too much. Um, but it was. It certainly it certainly uh, reinforced the point that that humanity doesn't necessarily have it all together, or at least not, you know, humanity without them being controlled. So. Yeah, I like that scene too. Um, yeah. it, 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 it almost failed what I call my Saving Private Ryan test, which is the first 20 minutes of that film oh, yeah. maybe the hardest thing I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Compare and contrast with something like uh, a tentpole movie like Expendables 2, where it's like the CGI blood headshots in every single... Every time somebody shoots a gun, some bad guy's head explodes. It's like It becomes comedic at that point. Oh, yeah. It had to be hard for the filmmakers, if they were trying to make... A, a summer blockbuster movie. B, a pretty film that attracted all audiences. Well, not all audiences. This was at least NC-17. And C, something that was uh, politically aware. Right. It had to be hard for them to come up with 
what's the perfect measure of a violent scene to show the dire consequences and maybe also mix in the cool scenes that give the, the audience their, their bloodlust rush, because right. that is what part of the, of the action film genre is about. Right. Uh, but also make it silly. I think the reporters were an excellent part of that. Right, right. Yeah. So, uh, reporters on the ground, get away, get away, what are you doing here? Yeah. Of having like civilians with big old fashioned 90s cameras embedded with this military, <laughs> that just to me was absurd. Well, you know, it, it is, but even today when you see, um, you know, you see people from like CNN, Fox, or whatever news agency is out there, you know, in the thick of battle, and then they get hurt or injured, and we make such a big deal out of it, and yet. They're putting themselves in the front line just as much as any serviceman is in some way, and uh, I don't know. It's uh, the fact that they get hurt shouldn't necessarily be a shock, you know. What I thought was oh, funny you know. was when when the one reporter he gets impaled by a bug and gets taken away. The cameraman he just keeps filming. Yes. Yeah, I know. I'm like, <laughs> like, like, you got to be kidding me! I, I would be running for my life. You know, this is good stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Ed Wood among the bucks. Oh man! Did uh, and uh, so those were just some of the scenes that stuck. Uh, were there other scenes, uh, John, that stuck out for you? Um, uh, I was somewhat fascinated by, of course, having uh, Doogie Howser. I keep calling him that because it just strikes me. His his name is completely left my head now. Is it, Neil is Patrick it Neil, Harris. Neil Patrick Harris, um, being going from all American. But geeky and no friends and a loner to a total powerful in command. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he became that because he had this, not only because he had somewhat psychic ability, but because he was able to use that to the military advantage. So it seemed almost like they were playing with a character who's like, I'm going to take this for all it's worth. I'll do the right thing, too. Right. But. So that was interesting, and I I do I do love the scene where um, our dear Michael uh, Ironsides buys the farm uh, in the outpost. Right. Fall back. Because you're sure that was a deep blue sea movement for, moment for me. You're sure that this guy is going to bring it right to the end, and in the like, like the last scene or something, he'll die, and Rico will save the day. It's not even halfway through the movie, really. Right. At least it's not even halfway through the, the war campaign, and he's done. Right. He's out. Yeah, which he, was great. 
You know, uh, I, you mentioned Neil Patrick Harris, and there's a little bit of Doctor Horrible in him in this in this movie because I mean he goes from this <laughs> no named villain to being you know you know he joins the the Super League of, League of Evil, Evil Heroes yeah. right and uh, you know joins Bad Horse and you know here he is you know he now is a part of the Central Command. criminal masterminds running everything. So I think this is really Dr. Horrible before his time, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, the, uh, you know, other scenes, there were some, there were some moments I looked at and said, Hey, this reminds me a little bit of star Wars, the med tank scene. Oh yeah. With, um, nah. <laughs> wasn't that, wasn't that like the, that's like the empire strikes back, you know, Luke Skywalker floating around the tube, except this is more like a big desk and him still having a, you know, breathing tube in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that reminded me. And I did wonder, um, and for some reason it hit me, and I could be totally off here because Miles knows much more about geek history than I do, and probably you do too, John. Um, and that is, uh, they mention, they, they make the comment, prepare for warp. And I, I had to ask myself, was this idea of warp, is that a, is that an, is that a Star Trek term or was that around before Star Trek? Oh, they had space warps before. Okay. Um, they did. Yeah. That was a standard, uh, okay. like radio mystery shows. Okay. In the- all right. I did. I wasn't sure, but it just struck me as being okay. Here's the Star Wars reference. Here's the Star Trek reference, and maybe it was, anyways. But it was a uh, bit different. So there's another scene that sort of resonates with me. Kind of gets where this world is. Is when uh, um, uh, Rico's character, after one of his guys gets accidentally, you know, killed. Um, the, the administrative discipline. Oh, the ten lashes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, just uh, you know, and and the um, the drill instructor gives him something to bite on. To goes, you know, take this, son. It helps. Believe me, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he was in charge of the exercise. The person dies. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the novel, I think it was that he uh, accidentally. It was like a, a, a tactical nuke scenario, and he accidentally nuked like a whole platoon. <laughs> Oh gosh! Oh, so it's much worse in the novel in this case, right? Well, it was like it was a war game in the novel. It was right. the fifth, so they didn't show him actually irradiating half of the platoon, right. but it was the same idea, showing someone has not got the skills to be a leader yet, right, and it's right. just just barely hangs on and survives long enough to get into a position where he knows enough to defend himself. Right. Right. Which is an interesting, uh, that flip side of that scene is when you have this massive armada of space, really nice looking spaceships mm-hmm. uh, in orbit and they're about to drop all of the tin cans full of soldiers. Those, it just seems so precise, so well orchestrated. Right. You know, but one of the things. Go ahead. They show that in a war that you're losing, you go from having the most well trained people 
people to the least. At the very end, you've got like 14-year-olds driving the ship and smiling. Right. And, and it doesn't seem like the movie doesn't end with a victory. The movie ends with, we know enough to fight now. Right. And then you see these like children being sent to war in these multi-trillion dollar starships. Right. Well, speaking of children, the one propaganda movie where they show, you know, this line of so, the soldiers that you see, all of them saying, I'm doing my part, I'm doing my part, and this little kid in. I'm in, doing my part. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The little kid there. That's at the very beginning of the movie, and they cycle around till it is little kids actually uh, running the ship. So that's an interesting uh, bookend to the movie. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I didn't like this movie just because it was a treatise or because I was balancing whether it was a black comedy or a sat- political satire right. or an action flick. It just looks damn good on a screen, too. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't look great by today's standards, but those are some awesome. Well, well I did want to. That kind of leads me to my next point. I, you know, I watched this, and there wasn't. Okay, there certainly is a feel to the movie that's a bit dated, but I thought that the special effects overall, you know, okay, some of them may have been over the top, but they didn't date themselves maybe as much as some movies do. Exactly. So, I mean, I don't know. What, what's your thought of that? As far as the, the battle scenes on the planet and them shooting, going, them and the bugs going at it, I think that still looks pretty good. Yeah. The, the spaceship scenes, they kind of date themselves a little bit, but... For the late 90s, this isn't too bad. No, I, t- I mean, and again, they had the budget. They did, they did throw money into this. Right. Uh, and so hopefully it does look good, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I well, thought- they didn't have enough money to pull the one big piece out of the novel. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a piece that uh, William Stickey did with his novel Armor to great acclaim as well. The first appearance in science fiction of the power suit, like, the balls to the wall, mech warrior style, totally enclosed. I can jump a mile up in the air. I've got a tactical nuke attached to my elbows. And they just, they, they still, the Avengers is probably Iron Man suit is the closest they've come. Imagine an entire movie of like a platoon of Iron Men going up against these beasts. These that would be insects. awesome. That would well, be awesome. That's, well, they're supposed to be rebooting it, but I hope, I doubt they'll go that way. John, have you seen the, the sequels that have come after? Um, the the first one, mercifully no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I don't know why I I you know maybe I just felt like I needed to. You were in drugs, um, Yeah, <laughs> um, I just need to beat myself. But um, I, I I saw the third one and I, they actually did incorporate uh, those battle mech suits uh, towards oh, the end good. of the movie. Yeah. Okay. So how did it hold up? Was that the one with Richard Berge? Um. I let's see. Casper even. Vindian re- re- reprised his role in that one. He's, oh, a, he's, okay. a, he's a colonel in this one. Um, I think he's the only character from the from the first one. Uh, Jolene Blaylock from Star Trek Enterprise. She plays a you know a starship captain in this. Um, I, I, they didn't have the budget like they had in this one, but it wasn't it wasn't too bad. I mean, it's, you know, with, with the battle droids and or the, with the battle mechs or whatever, it was, it was that was that was kind of cool watching them go at it and there's this great um propaganda song they they had in this in, in this third movie um <laughs> which we, we should try to find it on youtube um, um basically because we'll, we'll probably never rewind it must have thrown it into the show not not no i don't i doubt we'll have a rewind for the third for, for the third starship troopers but um maybe if we're scraping the barrel after like 200 episodes of my but but it, the, the song is called it's a good day to die courage duty honor we call upon our troopers 
in this our darkest hour. Our way of life is what we're fighting for. The flag that flies above us inspires us each day to give our very best in every way. It's a good day to die when you know the reasons why. Citizens, we fight for what is right. A noble sacrifice. When duty calls, you pay the price for the Federation. I will give my life. When all is fair in love and war, that's what my gunny says. You're not alive unless you're almost dying. These are the words I march by. Duty, courage, honor. Every single day, I'm out there trying. It's a good day to die. Why, citizens, we fight for what is right. A noble sacrifice. When duty calls, you pay the price for the Federation. I will give my <laughs> but it's it, it's it, it, it's sung with a sort of patriotic type. Uh, it, 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 it's it's a great propaganda song. That's you know. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. What were you going to say? I was just going to say the fact of the matter is they've got four sequels and a TV show. I know. Seem to be dying. No, no, and they and they are uh, talking about rebooting it, which means there's enough. There seems to be enough interest. They believe there's enough interest in 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 this to do a reboot. Mm-hmm. So, wow. Yeah. Um, well, let's also talk a little bit. Um, I want to talk about some of the a- some of the actors that kind of resonated with you. We did kind of touch this a little bit, but anyone else that stood out, and also maybe any notable quotes, and then we'll get into some feedback and some trivia. So, oh, first. Go ahead. First of all, I want I want to hear Miles' take because you know he's the one that if he can come up with a couple, I'll be impressed after how much he fought to get through this film. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so go ahead, Miles. Start out with the actors. Um, we, we we gave mad props to Michael Ironside. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, Clancy Brown. Um, I thought he was perfect as the as the as a sergeant in this movie. Um, Marshall uh, Bell wasn't he also? Uh, he's yeah, also done a stuff. He was. Yeah, um, I was. Rue McClanahan. I mean, I was just. That, that was very odd seeing her in this movie. She played the blind biology teacher. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but that was interesting. Um, uh, Jake Boosie, uh, son of uh, you know Gary Boosie, um, 
he almost plays the same kind of character in a lot of his movies. He does. He doesn't have a very diverse acting style. When I saw him, I remember seeing him the very first time in the movie Contact with Jodie Foster. He plays the terrorist in there. Okay. Uh, have you seen the movie Contact, John? Yes. Yeah. So uh, there was a point in my life where I probably I probably watched the movie 13 times because I just absolutely loved that movie at one point. Um, and I still really should go back and rewatch it. But there was something about this whole dialogue with you know, religion and science and the balance of that that kind of was fascinating to me. But anyways, he plays a terrorist. He plays a radical religious terrorist. Yes, yeah, so you just see him kind of turn around and then boom. Yeah. You know, and, and so – and he kind of – he's kind of on the edge of things and suddenly he becomes like the central – spokesperson for this. And so there was a lot of, you know, perspectives on religion. I thought it kind of investigated what I thought was interesting, but I love seeing him here. And when I saw him like, it's a guy from contact, you know? (laughs) Oh yeah. There were so many. Yeah. So, and then of course, Neil, you know, I did not watch Dookie Hauser. Yeah. I didn't watch it. So. Did you watch Kumar? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't watch that either. But oh, that, that that movie actually made me laugh so hard. I don't watch <laughs> drug comedies. I don't. I find them stupid. Like the only two I've ever been able to get through are American Pie and the first Harold and Kumar. I yeah. tried to watch five minutes of the second of each. Oh, but there was a kernel of brilliance of either, and neither of those have anything to do with brain bugs. Right. <laughs> so on target. On target. Stay is on target. That you think about. Um, now that you're doing it and you're watching a rewatch, you've seen Dina Meyer in everything. Oh, I know. And in this movie, she's like, she seems like just kind of like a throwaway. Um, yeah. Like somebody that they had to cast to get a part filled. But she was, she's been in a lot of things. Now, if you ask me to tell you what they were, I couldn't tell you. But uh, other than Birds of Prey, which was terrible. Um, well, she played a Romulan commander in Star Trek Nemesis. Nemesis. There you go. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but she wasn't naked. <laughs> that does add something to a film. Um, <laughs> At least two. Obviously, things. it does. Probably twenty million dollars. Right, right. Now you know, and it kind of um, that scene when they the whole shower scene they talk about. They actually the directors filmed it in the buff. I think that that, oh, that was yeah. It was a, I was looking at the trailer like okay, they did it on a dare. If you have to do this, then we'll do it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do it too. You know, that's a great way to. See create a good set right 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 you know let's just have a shower scene film orgy right you know not quite that but mm-hmm. how do you put people at ease we're gonna objectify you and we're gonna film it as close as we can but you might as well see my fat belly hanging out <laughs> right right good way to defuse the situation right, right. uh let's see uh, clancy brown for me have you ever seen a show called carnival no but i've heard of it it's a rondy moore uh was yeah, the, it was like 10 episodes or 11 episodes, and then I think got a that season I didn't see. But it's all about um, a, a strange preacher and a carnival and a boy that's learning about how the world is mystical after all in a very dark way. And uh, Cl- Clancy Brown brings to that film just like Kurgan energy, but, but Kurgan energy wrapped up in... Of a skin of false civility, and it freaks me out every time I see him. And then you see him in this movie, and he's playing the selfless character that punches people so that he can get demoted, so he can risk his life. I think he probably epitomized for me the the soldier, the soldier's uh, pathos view that the government has in this film. Hmm. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I, well, I like Clancy Brown. I've seen him in. Let's see. Uh, he was the. 
one of the lead soul, lead uh, uh, prison guards in uh, Shawshank Redemption. Okay, that's true. And he was uh, also in um, um, Buckaroo Banzai. He was he was in that. He was also he was an episode of Star Trek Enterprise, and he in the Superman animated series. He was the voice of Lex Luthor. And Lex Luthor. I, yeah, I, I mean his voice was perfect for Lex Luthor. It all comes back to Star Trek for you, doesn't it, Miles? Yes. All right. Well, that's okay. Oh. <laughs> always, always. Well, that's okay because uh, Blake Lindsley. Is that the way you're saying? Say your name. She was in um, Star Trek. Oh, yeah. Well, yep, yep. Uh, I had it right here. She's in Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. Okay. In the episode uh, Once, More, Once More Upon the Breach. Mm-hmm. So she played the character Sinon, S Y N O, and I think it's Sinon, Sinon. So another Star Trek trivia for you there. This uh, is the first movie. I think maybe the only. Well, I may have seen one, one other movie. Uh, Denise Richards. Uh, I think this is the yeah. first thing I ever saw her in. Oh, very good. I don't know if I've seen her in a lot of stuff either. Mm-hmm. But um, she was well, famous. She was uh, an it girl in the nineties. I don't yeah. know what I've seen her in lately. Oh, I do have to mention this is kind of sidetracking back to a favorite scenes. This is not a favorite scene, but the whole you mentioned the whole brain bug thing when you first meet the brain bug. Yeah, disgusting. And then the guy right before it gets anal probed. Yeah, you know <laughs> he gets stabbed in his butt cheeks. Right, I'm like. Come on. <laughs> well, come on. I mean, it was played for humor. It was, it was. played for, uh, at least it was played for humor. It, was, <laughs> it, was definitely it reminded me of like Robocop where the terror, the bad guy get one of the bad guys gets coated in acid and he's turning into a big stape off marshmallow man hit by a car and it's just blown into puffy smithereens. <laughs> I think Verhoeven does that good. But it, oh, yeah. one of my, one of my favorite lines was, uh, Oh, Michael Ironside's character. Um, Diz, who finally does join, is uh, uh, says she doesn't believe in war beforehand. She says, uh, "Oh, I'm going to look this up. I'm going to look this up. This quote. Um, I have uh, uh, IMDb quotes. Okay, Michael Ironside's character is Jean Razak. Didn't get that from the film, but anyways, Dizzy's in class with him. And says, My mother always told me that violence doesn't solve anything. I remember that. Oh, that's and a great quote. Michael Aaron says, Really? I wonder what the city founders of Hiroshima would say about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I mean, it just shows they used the biggest hammer and the biggest vitriol they could to show that might makes right. Right. And that's the, the guiding fundament of this society, which is why the second quote I want to say is so telling. The Sky Marshal. Um, the Sky Marshal, when he's in his, one of his live addresses to the whole human race, is we must meet this threat with our courage, our valor, indeed with our very lives, to ensure that human civilization, not insect, get this, dominates this galaxy now and always. Oh. Yep. Yeah, that's a phenomenal quote. I think one of the one of the quotes that stuck out from me is another quote actually by was Jean Razek or whoever it was. Johnny Rico saying, Mr. Razek, I want to join federal service and become a citizen, but my dad thinks he should go to college and remain a civilian as he has. What should I do? And he says and the, the teacher says, Figuring out things for yourself is practically the only freedom anyone really has nowadays. Use that freedom. Hey. Another good That's quote. a great line. That's a great line, yeah. At the very beginning of this film, it seemed like he got the most common sense truth, and it's just spiraling and becoming bigger and more yeah. bombastic as it went. Right, right. Miles, did you have any quotes that stuck out for you? Um, 
the ones you guys have have been throwing at each other. Yeah, I mean there there are some uh, there are some other funny ones, but, but any for you, John? Any others that kind of stuck out other than the one two you mentioned? Mm. There's there's a lot of good lines like uh, we thought we were smarter than the bugs is one that Carmen says at one point. Right. Um, oh, um, not a great line, but I love the fact that the penultimate act of violence and the penultimate human save our ass moment is when the Johnny Rico's love interest Carmen actually stabs the brain bug so it can't suck her head out. Um, you have females doing things in this film right. as well as being eye candy. Right, right. Including captaining one of the most the, the the most powerful character I saw in this film was a sky marshal. It was the very quietly portrayed captain of the ship that uh, Carmen was on right before things went wrong. Right. Yeah. Abs- ab- well, absolutely. You know, I had when she was uh, when she was there, kind of commanding everything, reminded me just a little bit of Janeway, just a little bit. Wouldn't you say, Miles? Yes, a, a little, little bit, a yeah. little bit of Jane. And I think it's because she's female and she's in the command chair. But it was also the manner with which she was kind of commanding you with that calm, resolute voice, yeah. except for, except for when she's dying. But you when, know, when that door is cutting her in half, right? I mean, other than that, so, except for that one small thing. But well, I have some trivia here that I, I thought I'd share with you guys. Um, so it's not a lot, but just a few things. And uh, yanking a lot of this from IMDb, but uh, did you know you can see a miniature Millennium Falcon on the backside of one of the Starship bridges? Yeah. Yep, it's there. Um, another piece of trivia, most of the arachnids appearing in film are CGI, but a few are life-size. Robotic models were built. However, during the battle scenes, the actors would wound up looking at director Paul Verhoeven uh, himself, who would stand in front of them and jump and scream to elicit their reactions. <laughs> I like that. Guy stands naked in the shower and he'll jump and scream on set know, for I something know. other than a tantrum. Now, here's something with you having read the novel might make an impact. Director Paul Verhoeven admits he never finished reading the novel, claiming he read through the first few chapters and became both bored and depressed. <laughs> per, per, presumably, it was for this reason that the film adopts a satirical tone and not, not present in the book. So, mm. Um. Some of the walls were used from Total Recall nice. uh, in there, which I can see. Um, the base, which houses the Fleet Academy, is named uh, Tereshkova after the Russian cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space. <clears throat> nice. Yeah. Uh, the war motivator, you dogs want to live forever. That was another good line. <laughs> was famously used by Frederick the Great of Prussia while at war with Austria. Okay, so we have a very Fraser Crane literate director doing that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, in the novel, Dizzy is a man. He's killed in the first chapter. There was no romance between him and Johnny Rico. So, <laughs> um, and last, uh, this movie, along with Robocop, Basic Instinct, and Hollow Man, is one of four separate movie franchises in which the first movie of the respected series directed by Paul Verhoeven were successful, but the respectful sequels, not directed by Verhoeven, all either bombed at the box office or released direct to DVD. Mm. Mm. So, so I believe that that's my trivia. Any other trivia you guys know? I think yeah, in Firefly, um, Joss Whedon admits he rented some of the soldiers' um, gear for uh, 
for one the, the train job. I did not know that. Yeah, if you listen to the commentary, he talks about yeah, you know, it was easier to rent this stuff than to you know make costumes. So yeah, they rented the the battle gear for for some of their soldiers. Right, playing alliance soldiers. Yeah, yeah, well, very good. Yeah. Uh, any other trivia? You know, uh, John. Um, not, I, I guess the, he's got pretty much the best part stuff. You, yep. you took right my here. breath away with the firefly one. I don't think yeah, I, can see, I, I can't top that one either. Um, all right, well, let's move into some listener feedback and, um, we have two, two calls and then we have some written, uh, feedback we're also going to read and let's play the calls first. This first one is from Jim Arrowwood, also known as Killis on our show. And he, he's a, he's a reader, but also a watcher of these movies. I don't know if he watched this, but he, but he called in with his comments regarding, uh, Starship Trooper. So let's see what he has to say. I remember first seeing Starship Troopers when it was first released on VHS a few months after it was in the theaters. I also remember that I didn't like the movie very much at that time and never really gave it another thought until I learned it was to be rewound for this show. I had a copy sitting on my DVD shelf still in the original cellophane wrapping. I think my wife got it for me thinking that it would be something that I would be interested in. What's up? I watched the movie again a few days ago and found that I didn't like it any more than I did the first time I looked at it. But now I know why. The entire movie reminds me of a World War II propaganda film. I know that we made our propaganda movies and so did every other nation that was involved in World War II from a point of view favorable to their political philosophies. This film looks like a John Wayne war movie where the hero overcomes impossible odds to single-handedly win the war. But in this case, it is from a fascist point of view. I made it through the entire film and didn't like it even more than when I first saw it. I didn't care for the Nazi-like uniforms, especially when Carl came back on the scene toward the end of the movie in the SS-like great coat and peaked hat. I have to wonder what the director had in mind when making the film, because to me, he seemed to be making a political statement. I then decided to read Heinlein's novel of the same name. I very much enjoyed the novel that is a first-person narrative of the military career of Juan Juan Rico, a young man from the Philippines who chooses to obtain his full citizenship and voting rights through his service to the Federation which is a unified Earth government that comes into existence following the fall of democracy in the world. Only a few small portions of the book are about politics that to me seem to be based on Plato's Republic. I then decided to watch the film again with the commentary turned on. Very early in the commentary, Verhoeven states that war makes fascists of us all, and I knew that was what made this film so uncomfortable for me to watch. Verhoeven was, in essence, making a political statement with his film. So I had to wonder if Verhoeven wasn't trying to make the audience of Starship Troopers uncomfortable, and I was actually getting the point. I am pretty sure, though, that Verhoeven was not trying to make an accurate movie depiction of the Heinlein novel, as I later learned that Verhoeven actually started to read the book, but gave up on it after a few chapters because he found it boring. I don't like this movie. 
But that is not to say that it is without any redeeming qualities. The special effects of the ships in space were fantastic thanks to the artistry of ILM. I also very much enjoyed the performance of Clancy Brown as Sergeant Zim. His was the best and most believable performance for the entire project. As to the rest, I didn't appreciate the -the over-the-top performances of the other characters. I kept waiting for Carmen to get a little sparkle from a front tooth when she smiled. I guess they were just all too perfect for my taste. But of course, if one were making a propaganda film, one would want all of their characters to be as perfect as they could be. Well, there it is. I remain Kalis. Kapla. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, thank you, Kalis, for calling in and giving us your thoughts on Troopers. Uh, thoughts about what he's saying here. Uh, I'm pretty much in line with uh, <laughs> what, what Kayla said, but at the same time, it's it's not without it, without some redeeming value. Yeah, I, I agree that I don't think it's the same as the novel, although it does follow some of the points. The screenplay was written by somebody who did read the novel right. and is faithful, um, at least faithful enough that you can see that he's trying to keep the spirit going. But I do love that in Verhoeven, I think, I think that was one thing that maybe the, a lot of people didn't see the first time out was that there was a huge despising of war from whoever's leading the charge in Verhoeven's mind when he made this. And I, yeah, I think it's why it was so successful, at least successful enough to make a bunch of crappy successors. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, he brings up, so, I mean, he, he obviously uh, realized that there is some merit to this movie. I mean, he, even though he's, he clearly doesn't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, no. And no one doesn't have to. I'm just glad yeah. to see it. I, I'm a big believer in films that transcend what they were before. Yeah. I think the best movies don't look like the book and vice versa. Right. Um, because it's a different medium and you tell it differently. And it's hard to ever please everybody. But you got to try to find the spirit. And I, I think the screenplay and Verhoeven spirit meshed nicely to create a new thing. Right, right. Yeah. Well, any other thoughts on what Jim said? No, I, I, I'm pretty much like I said. I, uh, I think he and I are on the same page. Right. Very good. Well, we have another call in. This comes in from Floyd, and so let's hear what Floyd has to say about his thoughts on the movie. Hi, Scott Miles. This is Floyd from Aurora, Colorado. I just wanted to weigh in on uh, your future rewatch, rewind rather, of Starship Troopers. Uh, I think it's about 15 years old. Um, not a fan of Paul Verhoeven, so I'll just say that. I didn't like this movie for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, one of them is not because it's different from the book. The film adaptation can be very different, and and both can still be really good. At, you know, when, when when looked at as separate narrative experiences, like Blade Runner and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, very different stories. You know, share very little in common, and that's okay. Both of them are very very good. Um, this isn't like that. Um, the novel Starship Troopers is basically a political essay that explores ideas of citizenship and and democracy and what it means to be a citizen and concepts of leadership and uh, the responsibilities of a leader. Um, 
and it's all all those ideas are discussed within the within the context of uh, telling a story about a group of soldiers that climb into power armor and get into these capsules and get shot out of the spaceship and fall to the ground of some alien planet to fight some bad things. Um, the movie is just laughable. It's just over the top and ridiculous, and it just is a shining example of everything to do wrong in a movie. Um, I think of the one scene with Michael Ironside, who's a great actor, great character actor. Um, but when he sticks his two, you know, iron gloved fingers inside of the skull and pulls it out, and it's got the sticky red goo on it, and he looks at everybody else on on the scene, and he says, "They sucked out his brains, Johnny." I, I mean, I still burst out into mad yells of laughter because it's just, it's just, it's laughable. You just can't take it seriously. Um, um, the, the news cut scenes, it's just, uh, it's just asinine. There's just nothing good about it. Except the, except that how well, how, 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 what an exemplary job they do with being so bad on every level. Um, yeah, just crap. Okay. Uh, alright, that's all I got for you guys. Have a lovely day, a lovely evening, and, uh, enjoy listening to the podcast. Take care. Bye. All right, this is a man of no opinion. <laughs> he could take it or leave it. Well, you know, you know, it, it, that seed, we didn't talk about that line, but, you know, <laughs> sucked out his brains. Classic line. You know, you wonder when there's lines delivered like that if Paul Verhoeven even meant for them to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean. Uh, well, let's take a look at Robocop. I mean, that was both a serious movie and, like we alluded to before, some very silly stuff that you're supposed to feel that it's safe to laugh at. Uh, I think Verhoeven has a more sensible response to or, or understanding and consideration of violence than a lot of movie maker movie makers do that are willing to do what we said before, just show the headshots all the time. I think that he's trying to make it not more palatable, but uh, explore violence. Like, it is laughable and it's so sad. Like, it, no matter who's winning. The right. tremendous cost is horrible, and it makes fools of everybody. Right. Yeah. It's a very polarizing film, and I'm very sorry. Hey, my first choice was Donnie Darko. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <clears throat> it's true. Yeah, you had a third choice, and I wouldn't watch that one either. I forget what it was. but Nobody likes my choices. No. <laughs> Do you know what? I, you know, I, I'm actually glad that we're re- we are rewinding Starship Troopers because I feel like – even though it's not going to ever go down as my favorite movie, I feel like that, you know, John and what some other comments of, pe- of people that have said is, I feel like I can respect the movie at least a little bit more than I did, mm-hmm. because there is this other level and this other commentary of of war and what he's trying to say. And so I'm very glad that we're having this discussion that we did rewind, even though it may not have been in my initial choice. You know, honestly. Cool. So, um, so I'm glad you suggested it, John. I'm glad we're doing it. So, <laughs> well, we have some. We have a uh, email. Thank you so much, uh, Floyd, for calling in and giving us your thoughts, and uh, appreciate it. Uh, JP Harvey wrote in, and here's what he had to say about his thoughts on the novel. He goes, hey, Scott and Miles, here are my thoughts on the 1997 film Starship Troopers for the Sci-Fi Rewind. Not as bad as I remember, but still nothing even close to Heinlein's amazing novel. I have both sitting here in front of me. I have to admit. I've seen all three movies. First one was tolerable. The other ones were truly awful. 
so here are my thoughts with the 1997 film Starship Troopers. I first read the novel when I was in junior high school in 1977 and I bought a copy and read it again in 83. I read it again and included a reference to it as a part of the courses I taught at the Air Force Academy from 92 to 94. I can't remember the first time I saw the movie, but I think it was within a year of its 97 release. I remember being disappointed with the movie because it emphasized the surface story combat rather than the more significant underlying messages Highland addressed in the book. Of course, as a young man, I, I was captivated by the technology Highland described. It was only later I realized that much more significant messages he was communicating through the novel, some of which are common to many of his works. The movie doesn't approach the quality of the novel in any way. That said, I watched it again and tried to give it a consideration based on its own merits. It was a bit campy and over-the-top in many ways, but wasn't as bad as I remembered. Highland's messages about citizenship and personal responsibility for society are still there, just not dealt with as nearly as thoroughly as in the novel. Instead, the movie contains a great deal more combat than I remember being in the book. But I'm not sure that's a surprise given the need to draw crowds to make money. As I recall, significant portions of the novel took place as conversations in classrooms or similar venues. There are enough shadows of the original story, though, that if someone looks past the surface of the movie, they'll see Highland's fingerprints. I think this is why the movie was more acceptable to me this time. The novel was definitely a product of, of his time, with Highland attempting to express his thoughts on a society, citizenship, the use of force, and total war. This is why the book was such a great reference for me while I taught at the Air Force Academy. There are some pretty extreme views about what Highland tried to express in the book out there, to resulting in accusations that he, he, he championed militarism, authoritarianism, curtailment of democratic rights as we know them, and even sexism and racism. My take on this is a little more moderate. Placed in the history of the time the novel is written and are somewhat supported by Hollywood's expression of the story through film. Looking at the body of Highland's writing, it's clear that he had a vision of, the, of a future where disease, income, and one's role in society were secure and not hindrances to happiness. Right or wrong, Highland was a champion for gaining and maintaining a nuclear force for the nation's use to defend itself in the event they meet an enemy that they could otherwise defeat in conventional force. Some say he was also a quiet supporter of fascism, but I don't think so. I think he was attempting to demonstrate his view of the benefits of a very strong republic, which he viewed as possible only if anchored to a strong representative government. The world has come out of a World War just the decade before, and the ugliness of World War I was as part of society's memory. The military imagery in the firebomb cities, large fleets with large ships, and even an island hopping campaign toward an enemy that could destroy all life as we know it. Very much the look and feel of World War II. I think Highland was, in, was wrestling with a, a, how to create a stronger and more responsive form of liberal democracy with an eye toward a future that looked like almost utopian, a democracy that made it clear that the rights and privileges of society came with obligation for duty and more specifically an obligation falling on citizens meant more than it did then and does today. If you didn't want to assume responsibility, responsibility for society, you could still enjoy the wonderful benefits, but you weren't a citizen and therefore eligible to vote and govern. He specifically used the combat sacrifice of the, of the greatest generation as an example. Oddly and perhaps sadly, what grew out of his vision in many ways looked similar to one of the enemies we fought so hard to defeat at the time, fascist Germany. I'm not convinced, though, that, this was, that he was championing fascism or Nazism in any way. I see more direct tra traces to classic Greek Greece's forays into a prototypical democracy and democratic principles, certainly Athens, and to some extent Sparta, and also to Switzerland, perhaps much more than Germany in Highlands Day. All these points and many others remain open for debate. 
As for the movie, I was surprised to find I enjoyed it once I caged my thoughts and watched it for what it was. It stands on its own, but it didn't come close to the amazing depths thought in Heinlein's relatively short 200-page novel. If I allow the movie to be only measured against the novel, the movie comes out much less tolerable. Thanks, as always, for the amazing feast at the diner. JP in Las Vegas. So uh, thanks, JP, for writing in. So some pretty heavy stuff. I mean, he taught this novel to Military Cavalier, at least used as a reference point. Right. Uh, That's heavy. John, what are some of your thoughts on this? I think you got great fans, first of all. Great (laughs) listeners that put together some serious cogent thought. Right. Um, And I agree with everything he said. I don't think this movie could possibly stand up to the 19... 50, 60, whenever it was produced, it won the Hugo Award for, for being a science fiction novel. Um, it's a great piece of literature, but very clearly he's taking a look in the novel of the 60s um, at the sacrifice as a, a polarizing point for thinking about society. The movie, I think you're right, is much more closely in line thinking about the military-industrial complex, people's Apathy, entertainment culture, all of that. Maybe those aren't as big a concern. Well, the military-industrial complex is definitely, for me, a massive issue. But a lot of people tend to just kind of say, yeah, but that's not real or nothing you can do about it. Um, Maybe uh, today we're a little too jaded to look at those issues and treat them on their own. And that's why he had to jumble them all together. You know, it makes me think, John, as we're, as we're talking here, and I'm not suggesting this is the, the way we should do things or anything, but it, it does make you think in a society where – I want to say Switzerland, but it could be wrong. But there are societies where you are mandated that you have to do military service. Um, mm-hmm. I think Switzerland's one of them. Am I, am I right on that? I'm trying to remember. I'm not sure, but Israel but, is. Yes, but, one year of military yeah, service. So in a society where you're mandated and you have to be a part of it, it, it obviously quite different from where we live, Miles. Mm-hmm. And uh, What is it in Canada? Are you required to do military service? No, we're also not. We have the same issues with fighting the draft as you do. It's right. a very unpopular issue and nobody's going to try to vote for it. But, uh, you know, but, by, ma- by making I it... I have or, two minds. Go ahead. Then. Voting, uh, sorry, voting, serving your country, whether it's palatable or not. I mean, if you're just going to run the ambulances, if you're just going to push coal into the engines, if you're not, people say, well, I don't want to be complicit. And that's the choice our society has made is to not make you complicit. But I can strongly see the value for saying, well, if you don't like that, when you buy the vegetables off the shelf, you're just as complicit. It's just a few degrees more abstract and you can feel better about it. Right. We are complicit in everything your society does. If you pay into the tax base, if you buy things and if you uh, abide by laws. Yeah. So um, to me, it seems to me like a false mental argument to say that it's, it's like, uh, I'm just, I'm just not going to be involved, but I'm still going to live here and do everything else. Right. And there seems to be something that when we say that we aren't going to be involved, that somehow, the people that you kind of understand what they're saying in this movie when they say, if you want to vote and have this, this and this, then you got to serve. Mm-hmm. And and there, there's something to be said that if you are going to live in this country and benefit from this country, then you got to serve. Or if you don't, then you're going to have something a little bit less than the rest have. And if you don't want to go to war, if you don't believe in that, you 
I, I can understand the level of um, disagreement. And again, this is a mental exercise. I've never right. served, so I don't yeah, have a either. right to say. But um, join the Coast Guard or, right. you know, like Nathan Lowell. Yeah, do one of these things that right. you find is conscientious objection will not stand. But honestly, the conscious object, conscientious objection argument is you kind of got to move to an island in the middle of a valley or overthrow the government and make it what you want. Those are the only two extremes that you can really be conscientiously objecting. Everything else is just kind of mildly putting up with and ignoring the fact I'm part of it. You know, I remember in the, uh, I guess it was the 60s, that they offered uh, um, they offered the 1W service, which gave people that were conscious of objectors, if they got drafted, uh, the opportunity to serve the country in ways that were non-combative. So like my father, for example, uh, went and mopped floors in a hospital in Jersey at a vet hospital. You know, it was, cool. a way of, it was a way of serving the country, but it was it didn't violate his beliefs of having to go out there and shoot someone, you know? Yeah, I, I kind of think that there should be more society-building roles that we can all develop in our own lives. Well, you know, and here's the problem. When we don't do that, we don't take responsibility for our society. And um, I think that's some of the reason we aren't necessarily – we're kind of in the uh, stick that we're in sometimes. But yeah, kind of you can diverging. say what you want about a certain HBO TV show by Aaron Sorkin, whether it's great or merely a shadow of – former greatness. I won't come down on other side right yet, but uh, he does raise an interesting question. Is America the greatest country? Is North America the greatest civilization? Maybe not anymore in a lot of ways. Yeah. Maybe we need to reclaim that by being pr- proud, noble, and brave about taking personal responsibility. Yeah, we, wow, did I get that out of Starship Troopers? Yeah, we, we, We're getting very philosophical we, here. We are, we, we are and the, just one other thought in that, or maybe more, uh, and that is, you know, I think about even with my children, I'm sure, John, you have children too, that when your children are involved in something or you get your children involved in helping to do something, there's there's a sense of pride in the fact that look what we did. So, for example, Saturday, my daughter for the first time went and picked string beans with me at my mom's garden. And we cut them up, blanched them, and packaged them. And, you know, when we served it the other night, she was very proud of the fact that she had helped with this. And mm-hmm. when we do kind of – to bring this on a larger scale, if we have people that volunteer, uh, uh, you know, in some way that benefits the country, then suddenly there's a sense of – I'm helping out my country, and it's a little reminiscent of, you know, the 1940s. You know, look what I'm doing to help, you know, us fight, you know, the Nazi empire, right? Rosie the Riveter. Right. I mean, there's – and so – but there, but in – it's a way that you can develop pride in your country. So, yeah. Now, this is all debate class. I can easily do a 180 and go the other way. But for the purposes of this argument, given that we're talking <laughs> about Starship Troopers, I think there's not enough – if yeah. you want to call it patriotism, but I think a better way to put it is be putting your money, your philosophy, your wallet, and your time where your mouth is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This idea of serving, uh, I briefly toyed with the idea after high school of maybe possibly join the military. And the Army recruiter who I was talking to at the time, I mean, he was with my father, and my father served in the Navy, and, you know, um, the the uh, the sergeant at, or I, I guess he was a sergeant at the uh, uh, recruiter station just said you know I think everybody should serve at least two years it was just you know so I I, I suspect that maybe for some people in the military that might be you know that, that, in this country how they would feel 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we do have some other feedback here. We just got kind of sidetracked in that. So just a little other feedback. Um, this is from Facebook. And and Morgan Tyser said, the movie version of Starship Troopers is awesome, as it is campy. I love the dystopian vision of the future it presents. I really enjoyed the books, but they are so different, and it's difficult to compare. So he loved the movie version. Hmm. So uh, Greg said, would you like to know more? <laughs> and then Ben Eber said, uh, I saw this at the store. I'm curious. Not full price curious, just Redbox curious. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have a Netflix account, uh, you can stream it. You can definitely stream it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jem N said, We have to end. I guess we have to end uh, listener feedback with this. He goes, Jen M said, Starship Troopers was kind of horrible. <laughs> so so they're all over the ga- so they're all over the they're all over the gamut John on this. So yeah. But, oh well, you know all in all, I think there is obviously some merit. I mean, we obviously elicited some good discussion for us mm-hmm. and uh, some good listener feedback and some great thoughts from people that contributed here on the Starship Troopers. Not necessarily going to make me go back and watch it again, but at least not right away. <laughs> but but might make me actually want to read the novel before I do that. So that might be an audible.com book that I have to download and listen to. So. Definitely. But, all right. Well, I believe that's about. Do we have anything else we want to say about Starship Troopers, or do we uh, troop this to death? I'm surprised we we dissected it as well as we have. I, yeah, we, we're we found going, a, going on about an hour and twenty minutes here. So we really, you know, we we we, we did take it apart. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any final thoughts, John, on uh, Starship Troopers? Geeky service guarantees geeky citizenship. <laughs> there, there, there you go. There you go. All right. Well, we appreciate everyone joining us here tonight for our Rewind of Starship Troopers. Again, next month, we will be doing Galaxy Quest. It'll be a good Uh rewind, good fun rewind. And so make sure you get your thoughts and comments in and that you watch between now and then. Uh, So uh, before we go, John, tell us again a little bit about what's up and coming for you and where people can find out more about your awesomeness that is your patio books and literatures and ways they can support you. Great. Sure. Um, you can find out anything that I'm doing at servingworlds.com. Upcoming in the next month, I'll have uh, book one of Enemy Lines, Subversion, on the digital shelves, as well wait. as the anthology Walk the Fire. I'll be packaging a couple, several of my stories into um, anthology-sized, bite-sized chunks, uh, so you can get a little bit more bang for your buck. And uh, if you're interested in podcasts in any way, one of my side passions is podcastculture.com. You won't find my name on it anywhere. It's not there to make press for me, but it's uh, a site where you can create ad content about your favorite podcasters, technology, history of podcasting in wiki format, just like Wikipedia. In fact, we encourage cross-linking with Wikipedia. We're not here for the fame. We're here to create a one-stop shop for all the resources in the world to help you learn or teach or uh, develop podcasting for the next person that finds it. Right. Awesome. Awesome. Great. And thank you, John, for joining us tonight. Pleasure.
Yeah. And uh, Miles, hey, you know, it's, it's about that time for us to kind of exit out of the show. Okay. And uh, so thanks, everyone, again, for joining us on our 20th Rewind here. And I believe that's about it. Let's get out of here, Miles. Let's close up the diner, shut the blinds, clean the tables, and uh, let's make John do the dishes tonight. Sounds good to me. All right. I know he's got to do the dishes here. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you get when you don't pay for your food. Until next time, good night and good luck. We will see ya. The flames. Any who step through may stride across the world and beyond. A precious, precious few. The ferryman can guide you true through any flame and emerge from a crossing as young and strong as when first the flame kissed them. Fleets travel space for lifetimes, reach new worlds, challenge the black between galaxies, all thanks to the ferryman. But is there a price hidden in The Ferryman's Fire? A science fiction anthology featuring Matthew Sanborn Smith, J. Daniel Sawyer, Ed Robertson, Patrick McLean, Nathan Lowell, Brand Gamblin, Jason Andrew Bond, Jake Bible, and John Miro. Learn more at servingworlds.com. Walk the fire. The universe awaits. May The Ferryman take you. I hear you got words to pick with me, and I'm very sorry whatever I did. <laughs> <laughs> Not word. No, no, no. Don't think of it. I, questions. Questions, yeah. Yes. He's, he's perplexed a little bit. <laughs> John, can you hear me? John, losing you. Can you lose you, John? Uh, all right, my lost Johnny. I think I was my fault. I think I hung up on him. It was intentional. whom you're trying to reach is currently unavailable. Please leave a message after the beep. All right. Well, and we're here to talk about Starship Troopers. Yes. Miles' favorite. Miles' favorite movie. Is it really? No, not, <laughs> not really. <laughs> <laughs>
Wales, are you ready to go? What number? What number? Uh, rewind is this? See, we always have this discussion because we're old farts and can't remember darn. Nah, I'm gonna bring up uh, iTunes and yeah, I'm cheat iTunes. Them. iTunes never fails us. Mm-hmm. That works mostly. So, <laughs> so, so how's uh, you? Did you you teach high school or I did? I, I do. I teach. I teach high school. I teach um, the lowest level ninth graders, lowest level readers, and then I teach you know AP, which is like the elite. Seniors. So I have both ends of the spectrum, so it keeps me well balanced. You know, I'll say. I have those who struggle with reading and those that question whether I really know what I'm talking about because they're so much more intelligent than I am. So. <laughs> oh, so you're married. All right. All right. That too. <laughs> this will be episode 20. This will be episode 20. All right. We're, this is this is the 20th episode. It's great that we're doing this. 20th rewind. So, start you really screwed me up with your Skype. Your Skype uh, Status message said something about episode forty-two. Yeah, uh, what, what what does it say? I forget. So forty-two the answered everything. Yeah, so forty-two the answer to everything. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. So right, get me a towel and I'm good. Right. Don't panic. <laughs> Shut up and you just call. Yeah. <laughs>